All right, so we're back in Revelation. And last week was a little bit shorter. This week, buckle up, it's going to be a little bit longer. Um, as I started looking at the description that John puts before us about what we're going to see in Jesus, there is so much in three little verses in Revelation chapter 1 that we absolutely have to be able to see and hopefully understand better what it is that we're looking at when we see this because I've said this a couple times throughout the series so far that really depending on where we are spiritually kind of gives us two different perspectives of what we're seeing when we look at Revelation. So when we're looking at Revelation and we're on the side where we're like, you know, I'm really not sure that I'm saved, this stuff can be really scary and it can kind of put you on edge and if you're in that place today, good. You need to be a little bit on edge because you need to see the reality of what God's trying to reveal to us. And then on the other side of it, we see this, and I think that many of us look at it and just go, wow. Like, I've seen God and I've seen Jesus portrayed throughout the scriptures, but then you get here and it's like, this is completely different than anything we've seen. And it can, it can, it can kind of be awe-inspiring, and then you just kind of take that breath and you go, man, I can't wait for that. And so as we look at this today, we're, we're going we're gonna to look at it hopefully from that perspective. And I just kind of go back and remind you what we talked about last week, looking at the kind of overview of the first three chapters and what we're actually seeing in that bigger picture, which is Jesus makes a statement about him being who is, who was, and who is to come. And we also saw a statement uh, that was specifically written to John from Jesus says, what you have seen. Uh, what is now and what will take place later. And those three things kind of play out throughout the entirety of Revelation. And so it kind of, it makes the framework of everything that we're looking at. And so last week we just talked about asking that question of ourselves, what have we seen? And so we know what we saw last week from a kind of a bird's eye view. We saw Jesus. Like we saw what John depicted as Jesus and we saw it and we really didn't dig into it, but we, we looked and like I said just a second ago, it can be kind of wow or holy cow kind of moment for us. Um, but we, we clearly see Jesus here. We see where he is among the church in the church age and we see where we will be once the church age comes to an end. And that place with the believers in mind is we're going to be with him. And so all of it, in all of its total, just like the rest of Scripture, is always about pointing us to Jesus. I've said it before, we're not looking forward to heavens and streets of gold. We're not those people. Because Revelation tells us that's going away, that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and the old has passed away, the new is going to come. Not just in us, but in the, the heaven and earth. So if you're looking forward to that, and you're looking forward to seeing all your loved ones who have passed on before you, you're looking forward to the wrong thing. We are looking forward to being in the presence of our God for all of eternity. And I've told you before, I've quoted it this way. Even heaven is hell if somehow he's not there. That's the whole purpose. Heaven's not a location. It's a presence that we get to be ushered into when we go into eternity with Christ. And so we want to make sure that we keep our focus on that. And so we open back up in, John, in Revelation chapter 1 where we see John writing a greeting that Jesus has instructed him to write um, from verses 4 through 6. And it says that John is writing to the seven churches in the province of Asia. It says, Grace and peace to you from him who is 
who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So I mentioned this last week. This is literally written to seven churches. But if you go and you kind of track history, you can also see seven church ages that have already played out. And we're kind of in the last of those seven church ages. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we get into chapters 2 and 3. But it's also a picture that we can look at as seven warnings about different ways that we approach our God individually. Now, I don't ever want to just leave it as an individual situation, which is kind of what we do in the church now. Everything is such, we're such an individualistic society that we just want to make it individual. Like, what is God speaking to me personally? Nothing wrong with that, but let's not miss the big picture too, because everything in the Bible is always written to a group of people, a collection. In the Old Testament, it's written to his nation, Israel. In the New Testament, it's written to an expanded group called the church. And it's always intended to be understood and collectively uh, worked out in a group. It's not intended for us to try to work it out by ourselves. So we can look at it from that perspective, uh, and we will kind of see what you'll see what I'm talking about when we get into the seven churches over the next couple weeks. But we want to make sure that we also see it from the perspective of. These are seven churches that John knew, that John knew their struggles because Jesus is telling him. But it's also seven church ages that you see. But it's also seven sins that are really playing out today in the church and are manifesting and showing themselves in big ways and a lot of things. And uh, we want to be able to address that accordingly as well. And so the focus today is going to be on the very next verse that comes up in Revelation 1 verse 7. It says, look He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And so when we see this this picture that John is trying to paint in one verse, and we talked last week about what have we seen, I want to just deepen that a little bit and just look at that coming on the clouds. And see, this is not the first time that this statement is actually made in Scripture. It's made a couple of times, but there's a direct referencing back to uh, Daniel and the prophecy that Daniel has for the people. And in Daniel chapter 7, it says that in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, this is Daniel speaking, and we know it now as he's talking about Jesus. But the imagery that is here is so such a common thread to the second coming of Christ that John just ushered in in verse 7 that we can't ignore the, the two phrasings that take place. But we also need to remember there's a principle that if, you, if you're not familiar with Bible study, I'm just going to give you a little Bible study tip. So anytime you see things like this that repeat multiple times throughout Scripture, usually, it's not always the rule, but usually you want to go back to the first context that you see this happen. So when he says something about coming on the clouds, you want to go back to the first time it's ever appeared in Scripture. 
And then you want to study it from that point, then work back to where you are. So when we're in Revelation, we don't want to start here and try to figure out what John's trying to portray. We don't want to just go to Daniel because it's not the first place that it's happened. The first place that it actually happened is all the way back in Exodus. And there is multiple references in the book of Exodus to this thought. And this is where we're going to kind of get our understanding about what John is trying to relate to us. So if you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, it says, And the Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud to guide their way by day and a pillar of fire to give them light by night so that they could travel by day and night. It's the exact same phrase that Daniel uses. And then when you translate over into Greek, it's the exact same phrase that John uses. The, the pillar of cloud is a guiding post. It's something that they would recognize very easily, right? They knew what it was. They know what they're dealing with. But it also adds here that there is a, a pillar of fire as well so that they could, that they could uh, travel by night also. You're going to see in just a minute that the word that we're going to see for that same thought comes up in the description of Jesus as he's standing amongst the lampstands. So hang with me for just a second. As you continue in Exodus, it says, While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. So here's another time where we see that same thing. So the repetition of things is like, hey, this is not the first time that God's done this. And so when John's writing this, he's thinking about these things. He knows that the people know that this is going to happen and they can identify and reference it. So you continue in Exodus chapter 19. This is one of the most vivid pictures. It says, Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And in verse 7, it says, So Moses went back, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words that the Lord had just commanded him to speak. It said, The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And then catch this in verse 9. It says, The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and you will always put, they will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight. Of all the people. And so when John is saying what he's saying about he's coming on the clouds, guess what? Scripture tells us that the day and the time are not known, but you're absolutely going to know what's happening when it happens. This is not going to be something that should take any of us by surprise who have heard the scriptures. Because when he comes on the cloud, God says clearly in this word that you're going to know what's going on. And you're not going to have to question it. Like a lot of people in the church are like, hey, are we living in this time? You're going to know when this takes place. Not because you're walking around with your head in the clouds, but because you're going to see the clouds coming down. And he's going to be on it. And we need to make sure that we are aware of that because Scripture already indicates to us that that's exactly what's going to happen. So when he gets to this vision of Jesus, you already know who's coming. And then he vividly tells us what he's going to look like. So when we get into verses uh, 12 through 16, it said that he turned around to see the voice that was speaking to him. 
It says, when I turned and saw, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Have we heard that before? You just heard it in Daniel chapter 7. You hear it throughout Daniel, the word someone like a son of man. It says that he is dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. There's the word fire that we just saw referenced that lit the way for the people of Israel at night. It says that his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. It says in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And so we see this picture, and you could probably see somebody trying to paint this, and it would be kind of a... I almost see like a dark ages kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like if, if you've got that mentality, you kind of see this and you're like, wow, this is crazy. And we've got a lot of, uh, we have a lot of imagery to things like this because of the way technology works in our society today. You see movies that have things like this all the time. So it's not really, sometimes we can be kind of desensitized by what we're seeing because we don't have to have a vivid imagination because we see it all the time. You see, the, like the Transformers movie that just came out and all these cars turning into robots and walking around and fire and all this other stuff. They're shooting lasers and like you don't have to imagine it. It's like, wow, they made it happen. So when you see stuff like this, you, you kind of get a very vivid picture of what John is trying to relay to us. And so I, I, I immediately, I tell you all the time, and I'm going to say it again today, I ask questions every time I come to the Word. And I'm sitting here thinking about the person that we're seeing. We know it's Jesus, and it says that he's standing among the lampstands. And so my question is, like, what's giving light to the lampstands? Like, that's my first thought. It's like, what's giving that light to the lampstands? Because it doesn't say anything about the, the lamps actually burning. It doesn't say that they're illuminating anything. It says that it's... Him standing amongst these lampstands, and I immediately got the thought, like, wow, in this instance, the thing, the person, the spirit, God himself is what's illuminating the light of the lampstand. So the churches are illuminated because Christ is still standing amongst them. That's why we talk about, when we look at this over the next couple of weeks, that where Jesus is, is among his people. He's in his church by the power of his Holy Spirit. When I say that, it's not, he shows up on Sunday and then he goes about his business every other day. He's with us constantly. We, we need to be sure that we're aware of that. And what gives us light is not something that we do because we can't produce it in ourselves. It's what he produces in us. And so when we see him standing amongst the lampstands, he's the one that gives its light. It says, the Son of Man, the one like the Son of Man that provides the light in this instance. And it's very similar to what he did in Exodus 13. The Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud to guide their, their way by day and a pillar of fire to give them light by night. He was with them constantly. He showed two ways that he was with them in Exodus. He shows himself standing amongst the lampstands in Revelation saying, this is, what I'm, this is what my purpose right now is. I am redeeming these people and giving them light to shine in a dark world. So you got a message right there in and of itself about what we're supposed to be in this season of what Revelation is showing us. But we also want to make sure that we see the elements that are present in the description that John gives us. And so the first thing that John mentions is actually the robe that he's wearing. And so you may not give much 
pay much attention to that because it's, a, it's really a traditional garment for that time period. John's probably standing there himself in a robe of some kind because it's normal. Like for us, if one of you dudes walked in in a robe, we'd probably look at you funny. It's just not really our thing these days, right? If you're not wearing pants and you got a dress on, we're going to ask some questions. But in this time period, to see Jesus in a robe, it's not something that's really too off or far-fetched. But there is some descriptiveness to what John says about it. And you go back to verse 13. It says, Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. Okay, so what's the big deal? Well, you know the robe is just a traditional garment, but we also know that there is some selective terminology that John uses here. And when you go back to Daniel, there's some terminology once again that are interwoven together. In Daniel chapter 10, it says, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen. So we got a little bit deeper description of the linen cloth that he's wearing. So he's wearing a robe and he's wearing the exact same belt of fine gold that Jesus is wearing across his chest that John mentions in Revelation 1 verse 13. So he goes on to describe in Daniel similar details as John. And then Isaiah tells us a similar scene. If, you're not, if you don't remember, this is probably one of the most famous passages in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. But in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, it tells us, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So, Michael asks another question. Why are the robes different? This is just how my mind works. Why has he got a robe and his feet are showing in Revelation? But the Isaiah picture is that the robe is so long that it fills the entire temple. The reason is we need to be able to see his feet. Why do we need to be able to see his feet? I'm going to explain it to you in just a second. It's a key component to what John's trying to show us when we think about it because it, it doesn't... It, it conveys two totally different things. So we see this robe. We see that it cuts off at the feet. It's a priestly type garment. It's not anything special looking. It looks just like any other common person. Now we add something to it and we see the next phrase that John uses. He says that there is a gold sash around his chest. There's two key elements to this. There's actually a color and there's a location. So you can wear a sash or... a you can call it a vest or it can be something like a girdle. The intent of this particular garment is to hold the robe back. But the color is significant. And I think you probably know the color. You're probably thinking royalty. There's something significant to that. But just, just to really go back and, and, and think about it, we know throughout Scripture, and I'm not going to throw out a whole bunch of Scripture. I'm going to show you one from Daniel chapter 10 that mentions this. It's the same one I just showed you. talks about a belt of fine gold uh, from Euphaz that's around his waist. There's only two references in all of Scripture to that, and it's one in Daniel and one in Jeremiah. I'm not going to tell you the significance of that because I don't know yet. Because I didn't dig into that. That's one of those rabbit holes that if you start digging, you're like, oh, we're going to be over here for a while. So I'll go back and I'll dig in on that later on, but there is some significance to that. But when you see that reference in Daniel chapter 10, verse 5, it says the same thing that I just read just a minute ago. He's got a belt of fine gold, same similarity that looks like the belt that Jesus is wearing around his chest. And then you go to Jeremiah chapter 10, it says, Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz, the work of a craftsman, 
from the hands of a goldsmith. Their clothes are blue and purple, all fashioned by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, eternal king. The earth quakes at his wrath and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Then we get to the location that we're talking about. We see the, the gold ornate type. And this is not just a color. It's actual gold that's wrapped around Jesus. So it does indicate royalty. It indicates priestliness. But it also indicates something when we think about the location and what they're actually used for. And the intent is to see this like this. John sees the Son of Man dressed in a robe with a garment holder on, which indicates that he's got work to do. And we know by looking at Revelation that Jesus is about to reveal some things that he's fixing to be working out. And so you can walk around in just a robe, but when you put on a waist harness, a girdle, if you will, or you've got it wrapped around your chest like Rambo, it's time to go to work. And so John sees that. He knows that. And he's trying to relay that to us. And by the way, it's actually where we've heard the term before, gird your loins. You heard that before? This is actually what that translates. When you put that on, you're literally girding your loins. You're preparing your body for work. So there could be some additional elements. It's not put there, so I'm not going to read it into it. But we know that Jesus is going to have some tools of the trade as he goes to work. And so anybody that's wearing this is going to have tools of the trade. That's why I mentioned Jeremiah 10. They would have a belt or something like this. A goldsmith would have what they need. They'd have their hammer. They'd have those items at their ready so they could use them quickly. And so Jesus, the picture is, he's not coming back just to be like, hey guys, I'm here. Look how pretty I look in my robe and my golden sash. No, Jesus is standing here. John's letting us know he's about to do some work. And we need to make sure that we understand the work that he's going to do. And that's why we're looking at this incredible book of scripture. Because we want to understand what it is that he's about to do. But it's not the only element that shows up. We talk about pure wool. It says in Revelation 1.14 that the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. Now us, we always denote, I can see a couple of you in the room that got that slick fox look. Boom, baby, you got white hair. Looking good, wearing it proud. That ain't what we're talking about here. So we're not looking at just an age factor because a lot of people would just denote that that white coloring of the hair is just denoting that Jesus is aged. He's old. It ain't got nothing to do with that. It's about purity. It's more than just an age factor. It's about purity. And so Daniel shows us this in Daniel chapter 7. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancients of days took his seat. It says his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool and then it talks about fiery flames again. He says the, the throne that was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. So, like, I won't get into that either, but that sounds like it's, it's movable to me. That looks more like a Mario go-kart or something with flames coming out. You've seen one of them now. Every one of you seen your kids play it or something, but that's the picture that I get. I know that's silly, but you've got them little go-karts that's got flames popping out. That's kind of what I see. Jesus is, like, kicked back on the... Okay, that's really bad to put it that way. But that's just where my mind goes. 
But you see that picture that the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing white as snow, his hair on his head like pure wool, indicating that same color. Isaiah echoes and mimics the same thing. says, Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It reminds me of what Jesus came to do the first time. And you think about that first coming of Jesus. What was his purpose? He told us what his purpose was. He said that the Son of Man, he used the same term that John used. He said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And he has this Isaiah passage in mind when he says it. And when you think about what took place at the Passover just before his crucifixion, it's recorded in John 13. It says he got up from supper, laid aside his outer garment. That would be that girdle, that vest, that thing that we just talked about. And it says he wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with the towel that was around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Guess what? Here's later. You're going to understand later what I'm doing. It says, never shall you wash my feet, Peter told him. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. So we know what Jesus came to do. He came to do what Isaiah said, to make us as white as snow. And now we've got him showing back up. What he did the first time was to be a servant. That part is done. It's over with. The cleansing process and possibility has happened. Now we see Jesus standing here white as snow with his loins girded and he's ready for the harvest. I'm coming back to get what I've cleaned. Jesus said, I worked for this, and I'm coming back to get my people. I'm coming back to get those who have put their faith and their trust in me. So we see the, the picture of that cleanliness of the, of the white wool in Jesus' hair. And then the next thing that John mentions is the eyes blazing like fire. Be like the, the, the twinkling in our eyes. But this is, just seems so much more vivid. To me, And John said it in verse 14. He says, The hair of his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. When you go back to Daniel, you see something very similar. It says in Daniel chapter 10, His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. And he goes on to describe in more detail some things that John is also describing. He says his arms and legs like the gleam of uh, burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. But it's not just there, it's repeated right before John addresses the churches. And when he talks to the, uh, one of the churches in uh, Revelation chapter 2, it says to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire. And then he repeats again, whose feet are like polished bronze. And what did we say that the words that Jesus had for the church were? They are warnings. And so we see this Jesus standing here. Why is he warning them? Because the fire in his eyes is a fire that consumes. There is a, the, one of the artists that we played this morning. His name is Mac Powell. He's formerly the lead singer of Third Day. Third Day had a song, came out years ago, probably early 90s, late 80s, I don't remember, called Consuming Fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And it's absolutely true. Don't believe me? I'm fixing to throw you some scripture. There's multiple places. I'm giving you three. 
Hebrews chapter 12. For our God is a consuming fire. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Like, you can't misinterpret that. Like, the writer of Hebrews just says, guess what, bro? He's this. Deuteronomy goes all the way back. It says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Psalm 21, you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Our God is a consuming fire. So what does that have to do with anything? At the very sight of unrighteousness, it's going to be consumed. When this Jesus that we see in Revelation 1 sets foot, that's what those eyes are there for. It is to consume everything that is unrighteous in his path. There is no more mercy at this point. We, we need to understand that, that fact because I'm old. I guess I'm going to tell myself. We watched the uh, documentary over the last few days that's on Hulu, the Hillsong, Secrets of Hillsong. Y'all, I don't, I mean, I don't recommend watching it, but if you want to watch it, you can watch it. But some of the stuff that came out of that and the people that were complaining, I'm like, they're complaining because they wouldn't be accepted for this sin or for that sin. And I'm sitting there going like, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat going, oh, this, this aggravates me. Because the painting was like, did Hillsong do a lot of really bad stuff? Absolutely. And they'll answer for it. Not, I mean, they're going to answer for it in this life too, some of the stuff that they're dealing with currently, but they're also going to answer for it in eternity. But the people that are sitting there casting judgment for their own sin, I'm like, you can't see it. And you're going to be consumed because of this. When he comes back, it's not going to be the servant that got down and washed feet. That picture's been floating around Facebook too. Have you seen that one? Jesus washing all these people's feet. It's got the picture of the president, somebody draped in a rainbow flag, and this person and that person. you seen all that? He absolutely did not come to do that. He has no political affiliation. He is not going to condone sin. He never has, never will. And the mercy that we are talking about is so that you see the sin that's in your life. That's where grace comes in. He's given us grace after grace so that we see, man, I'm a sinner and I need that grace. It's not so that I can continue to do it over and over again. Because when he stands in this picture, you don't have the option any longer. He's going to wipe it out because he's a consuming fire at this point. And we need to make sure that we're aware of that for ourselves. But we also have people in our lives that we need to be aware of that for. And it should... It should break us to the point where we're down going, God, I know these people. I love these people. I don't want them to be consumed when you come back. Lord, help them see the error of their ways as you've shown me the error of mine. There's no pride in that from us. I'm not walking around pointing out people's sin because I'm better than you. No, I've already had it pointed out for me and I know that there's a better way. That's why I'm willing to have those conversations. And we all have to do that because this moment's coming. This moment's coming for everybody. And he's going to stand and the unrighteousness will absolutely be consumed by the fire in his eyes. The next thing that John shows us, though, is bronze feet. As if that was not a difficult one to deal with, with the fire in his eyes. In verse 15, it tells us, that his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. So Daniel's already alluded to this, and I've already shown you this passage, but I just put it back up there. It says that his body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. Revelation 2, as John begins to write to the church at Thyatira, says that his eyes are like blazing fire and his feet like polished bronze. Interesting 
again, that the symbolism of judgment and righteousness and cleansing have to do with fire. Fire in his eyes, uh, burnished bronze, the, the gleaming look of bronze that's actually used here. It's not just denoting a color, it's denoting a look of bronze glowing in a furnace. And so if you've if you've never seen that, which most of us probably have not seen that, it's actually not the color bronze, which is that bronze. I mean, that's the only way to describe it, right? It's actually white. It's so hot that it turns white. So the picture that he's given is like a white brass that's so hot, it's burned up in the fire. And these are his feet. So not only everything that he sees, but everywhere that he trods is going to have this in its path. And you're going to see the remnant of that. It, it talks about it quite often, but it's also related back to um, the brazen altar, or the bronze altar back in the Old Testament. So if you go back to Second Chronicles, it says that Solomon went up there before the Lord of the bronze altar. The word bronze here obviously is a Hebrew word. New Testament is written in Greek, but when you translate these over, they're the same word. It's, it means the exact same thing. He says, which was at the tent of meetings and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. The white portion denotes also incense or frankincense. So when you think about that, when he takes a step, what's going to happen? There's going to be that little There's going to be a fragrant offering that comes up out of that. So that's really cool to like really dig into the imagery of what's happening. His feet are so hot that he takes a step and everything under it burns up. And it's burned up like, I don't know, maybe something like separating the wheat from the chaff. Remember when Jesus talked about that? What did he say he's going to do with that? He's going to throw that in the boom. Now he's going to be walking around doing it. We want to make sure that we understand that. And you've seen the frankincense side of things, incense burning, according to what it is trying to translate to us here. You see it throughout. You see one of the gifts that Jesus was brought by the, by the wise men being gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold's present here. Frankincense is present here. Um, don't know about Murray yet. We'll find out though. Everywhere Jesus is going to step is going to be purified as by fire, the purest of fires, that white, brazen, bronze look. Then the next thing that he mentions to us is that his voice is going to be like the sound of rushing waters. So the, there's several pictures of imagery, especially in the Old Testament of this. But in Psalm 93, it says, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord has clothed and armed himself with strength. The world indeed is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The floodwaters have risen, O Lord. The rivers have raised their voice. The seas lift up their pounding waves. Above the roar of many waters, the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is majestic. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, for all the days to come. Another picture of just that rushing water. He talks about the pounding waves and says the rivers raise their voices, the mighty breakers of the sea, the roar of many waters. This is the imagery that John has in mind when he's talking about the words that are going to come out of Jesus's mouth. And uh, Ezekiel echoes this similarly. It says, and the man brought me back to the gate that faces east. That's pretty important too. Won't get into that today. It says, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east, his voice was like the roar of many waters and the earth shone with all his glory. And so when you think about this, what John's trying to picture, like the only thing that I could relate it to, and it, it again, 
it's two pictures of the same image, but you're looking at it differently. So, all right, let me ask it this way. How many of you have been to the beach? How many of you have watched the water come in and it's just so pretty and you can hear it just breaking against just the beach itself? Now, let me ask you another question. How many of you have been in what's known as a rip current that's actually pulling you away from the shore? It's a different sound, isn't it? It's the same sound, but depending on where you're standing, you hear it differently, right? You're standing on the beach, and or you're even out in the water, what is it doing? It's pushing you back towards the shore. But when you're caught in that current, it's making the same sound, but it's sucking you out. And that's a scary feeling when you get to that point. And so this, again, gives us that same understanding that I've been talking about throughout. Depending on where you're standing is how you're hearing what Jesus is saying. The sound of rushing water is when I'm standing on the beach and I can just close my eyes and feel the breeze and I can hear that water hitting. It's beautiful. But if I'm out there and that rip current's pulling me, I'm struggling and I'm drowning and it's scary and I need to find a lifeline. So we, we want to make sure that we understand that sometimes what we're seeing here, it does have two pictures that we can see. It does make a difference whether or not we hear it. We need to realize it's powerful. It should be awe-inspiring on either side. It, it's, it's something that when we hear it, we know what we're hearing. We, we, we rest in it, or if we're in the rip side of it and it's sucking us out, it scares us to death, and we've got to fight to do everything we can to get ourselves out of that. So that sound that Jesus, of Jesus' voice is going to be like that for people. You're going to hear that rushing water, and you're going to go, man, this is like a relaxing day on the beach. But people who are not saved, it's going to be like, oh my God, I'm drowning. So when we hear his voice, what are we hearing? Well, John tells us that there's a sharp double-edged sword that's a part of this. He tells us in his right hand that he held seven stars. I know I'm skipping this right now. But it says, coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. So this double-edged sword, we know what it is, the word of God. We know that Jesus is going to do what Jesus has always done. Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan for 40 days, what did he use? He used the word of God to remind Satan of who his father was and who he was and what he came to do. And so he's going to come back and he's going to stand before the people of the world and he's going to use his word to remind us of what he's done. And that rushing water that we just heard, depending on how you hear what's coming out of his mouth, is how you're going to take that and receive it. This voice is going to be like the sound of rushing water, and it's that double-edged sword, the very Word of God that we know right here is going to be what comes out of His mouth. And then it talked about prior, the right hand that holds the seven stars in verse 16. Not a, lot of, uh, not a lot of reason for us to go, well, what is that? Because John tells us in verse 20, he says, this is the mystery of the seven stars. It says uh, that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. It says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we will get into that in more depth over the next couple of weeks. But he also echoes very similarly about that right hand. And I've talked about the right hand many times in this house and the significance of the right hand. That Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting to come get his people. We know what that signifies. It's a, it's a seat of authority. It's a seat of power. And so he's holding in his right hand these seven stars 
that are intended to be for the seven churches. And when you go back to Isaiah, he says, church, my people, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. What does he say? I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The same hand that he's holding these seven stars in. Jesus goes on and he says, tells the disciples, from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He mentions it personally. Tells his disciples and us where he's at to advocate on our behalf. Acts confirms it. It said, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And all that has been done and said leads us to remember that what Jesus is about to do in the next two chapters is to prepare his bride for when he's actually standing in that place. What we have is a vision that John has of what's going to happen. Jesus says, you need to be prepared for what I'm going to look like and why I look like I look and what's going to transpire. And then church, here's what's coming next. Here are the seven churches. And I'm going to go ahead and give them to you today. The seven churches in order. The loveless church, there's a suffering church, there's a compromising church, there's an adulterous church, there's a dead church, there's a faithful church, and there's a lukewarm church. All identified in the next two chapters. And so Jesus addresses them accordingly. He tells the first one, I see your works, I see your good deeds, but you have this one thing that I hold against you. You have forsaken your first love, the loveless church. And we're going to look at all seven of these churches over the next couple of weeks, but you need to realize that the Jesus that is addressing these churches is the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1, not the Jesus that came washing disciples' feet. There is a vast difference. And if we're going to be claiming to be a part of his church and you want to make this personal, you need to make sure that you're not part of the loveless church because it's all over the world. It's forgotten its first love. It's not just a single congregation of people that forgot it. It's a bunch of individuals that are claiming to be the church, but they forgot Jesus. They're going about doing things their way. They're going about claiming to love and they're doing it in the name of the world and inclusivity and everything else and they've left Jesus out of it. Because the reality is, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but the reality is there is no love without truth. Because tr- love, true love according to scripture is a truth claim. It's not how I feel about something. It's a truth claim. He's, God said that he is love. That's a claim to truth. And if he is love, then I have to define everything that love is by his character. That includes the stuff that's less than pleasant. And I've, I've told people this before, and I've had people that have scoffed at me before. I've told them, would you rather somebody tell you a pretty little lie or a little harsh truth? Which one's more loving? The harsh truth's going to hurt for a little while, but when you let it sink in and you really realize it, it's to help you. But somebody that just wants to pretty little lie me, they're pretty little lying me straight to hell. So we, meet, we need to make sure that as we approach these churches over the next, it's probably going to take more than a couple weeks. But as we approach these churches over the next several weeks, that we realize that, yes, he's talking to seven distinct churches. Yes, he's talking to seven church ages that we've seen happen. And we are seeing happen.
But he's also talking to us as individuals in the body, the bride of Christ today. And there may be more than one issue in my life that I need to deal with. And so as we do it, we're going we're gonna to transition from seeing the Jesus that we see to seeing what Jesus is looking at. And remember what this Jesus is coming to do. He's coming to do one of two things, church, and we've said it throughout this series. Depending on where I stand when this happens, he's either coming to save me or he's coming to judge me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you're coming to save me from all that's about to happen. Lord, help me to put myself in a position that I'm prepared for that. Lord, I don't want to be on the side of judgment. 